I don't do this very often, but I just feel like the Lord this morning is telling me to go here, turn to Philippians 4. This is one of my favorite sermons of all time. I really think it fits where we're going to be. I hope you've had a nice, cool week. (laughs) I just a minute ago checked the weather. It's going to be this way for two more weeks. And I'm dragging a little this morning. I was on the football field until 11.30 Friday night in scrimmages. And then we had to be back at 8 in the morning in scrimmage for six hours yesterday. And so I don't have the energy level I normally do. But we'll get through this and have a good time today. Uh, Next Sunday I'll not be here. So the staff will be filling in as they so capably do. I get to baptize my grandson next Sunday. It'll be the last of all my grandkids. So... You know, the privilege of being a pastor, I got to baptize all my kids, and now I get to baptize all my grandkids. And this one may be a little special he's a, because he's the last. He's 13, and something has happened that is amazing to watch. You know, my wife said this last night. She said, our Tim's changed. When 12, 13-year-old kids make a profession of faith, you don't always see a dramatic change. There has been a dramatic change. What's going on? And my granddaughter, who, you know, brothers and sisters don't always like to compliment each other too much. My granddaughter, Emmy, said to my wife, Lolly, Lolly, something's happened to our Tim. Our Tim lived in darkness. Everything was dark around our Tim. He never smiled. He never sang. He just would sit. He never smiled in photographs. He's changed, Lolly. It's like he stepped into the light. And I'm sitting there going, my granddaughter is not a theologian. She's not studied any theology or anything like that. But that's really what happens. And so I told our Tim yesterday, he played his first football game yesterday morning. I was just on the sideline. I wasn't coaching. I was on the sideline. I said, you ready for next, a week from Sunday? And he said, I will be. I said, well, hold, learn to hold your breath 10 minutes because I'm going to wash you clean. I'm going to get you under there. And we're going to hold you down until we're good and ready. But I, I, listen, I'm, I'm so excited about getting to do that. So you, next Sunday while you all worshiping, you might just throw a prayer in about this time because I'll be in the baptistry at uh, Cross Church doing that. All right. Here's why I'm changing. I think 2 Timothy is a tough book to have to follow. Because Paul's writing to Timothy in a very difficult circumstance situation. He's going to call him to do some very tough stuff. And so what I want to do is stop today and go back and say, are you and I able to be able to do this? Can we really accomplish what Paul has asked us to do in 2 Timothy? Case in point, Friday night, we were playing scrimmages against three high schools. They were all public schools. The first one, and my team is defending state champions, but we're not anywhere state championship quality this year. We lost 13 seniors. We got beat so bad. We got humiliated. We got run over, and we looked like we'd never played a a practice or done anything at all. Our head coach leaned over and said, Dr. Branson, we're going to be 0 and 10 this year because we have a tough schedule. I remember going over to one of the kids. He's, our, he's one of our captains. And I looked at Nathan. I said, Nathan, you're the best kid on this team. Nathan, you've got to lead. You've got to step up. You're not doing it. I need you to step up. Whatever happened, it got into him. And so by the third scrimmage, we dominated Keene to a point like I've never seen us do before. 
There was a change. I saw it happen in him that he took us to a level that I could not even begin to imagine. But I have another kid on my team that's a hothead. And in the first game, we took such a beating that he literally lost his cool and never played well again thereafter. I'm not so certain that many times when we face a very difficult thing, because this kid, I've talked to him over and over. I had him last year. You've got to keep your cool. I, I, I give him biblical advice. You've got to take a deep breath. You cannot lose it on the field. You've got to take the hits. You've got to take when your players make mistakes. You've got to be able to keep thinking. This is a thinking game. It's a tough game, but you've got to be able to do that. And as soon as something doesn't go right, he melts, folds, and, and falls. And the rest of us suffer because of it. Well, I've seen too often with even church members, the verse I want to do today is 413. You already know it. You don't even need to read it right now. But I've had people that sit there and say it over and over and over. They're facing a tough time. I can do all things through him. I can do all things through him. I can do all things through him. As if that is some kind of mantra that if we say it enough, it becomes true. Only trouble is that when the pressure of life begins to hit, the meltdown happens and they can't do much of anything. So my question becomes to me, and I want to know this. I'm not just doing this for you. I want to understand this. I want to be able, no matter what I face in life, to be able to handle it and to be able to walk in a manner because I want to do what Paul does at the end of 2 Timothy. I want to get to when it's my last day on this earth or my last weeks on this earth that I can look around and tell my family I fought a good fight. I fought a good fight. I finished the course that God had for me. I've kept the faith. That's what I want to be able to do. And I think that's what most everyone in this room wants within your life. And so when we face these difficult things, how do we stand there? How do we do it? I think this passage in Philippians gives you the definition of how you do 413. So if you'll stand with me, I'm going to start in verse 4 of chapter 4 and read through verse 13. Here's what God's Word tells us this morning. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, dwell on this. The things which you've learned, the things you've received, the things you've heard, things you've seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And I rejoice, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you didn't have the opportunity. Not that I speak from want. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I'm in. I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance in life, I have learned the secret of being filled. And I've learned the secret of going hungry, both of having abundance and of suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Father, speak to us in a clear way today. I really think Paul gives some of the best insights we could ever ask for on how to get our lives to this point so that we can be the kind of men and women you've called us to be. So that no matter what we face in life, 
We know that you're in control, that we trust you, and we're able to walk through with the kind of character you've called us to, to, to walk with, and that we can bring you honor and glory in all that we do and say. It's my prayer this day in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Most people think Philippians 4.13 is a promise. I'm here to state today that it is not a promise. There's no promise made here, even though we may say that this is a promise. What it is is, it's a statement of fact, a statement of what the Apostle Paul could do. He does not say in this passage, we can do all things through him who strengthens us. He says, I can. I can do all things through him. He's already told us that life does not magically happen, that you and I have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling in chapter 2, verse 12. You and I have to work in life in such a way that we can get the point that we might be able to join him. As I've stated earlier, I've known too many people who faced difficult times, and they quoted the verse over and over and over. They're trying to build up the courage to deal with what they're facing in life. But when the moment of pressure happens, they react wrong, say the wrong things. And instead of growing in confidence as they go through the difficulties in life, they grow more unhappier, and they have a tendency to lose hope. And in life, if you lose hope, you don't have much of anything at that point. So that leads me to something. Here's the question I ask myself. You may not think in the terms I do, but I'm looking at this, and I realize he's not saying we, he's saying I can do this. So my question becomes myself, can I do it? Paul says he can, but can I? Now, what's Paul facing when he writes these words? Because you've got to know the context before you ever jump in to try to figure out what's going on. Well, Paul, when he writes this letter, he honestly believes this, because I love it. It's one of my favorite verses in Philippians, chapter 1, verse 6. It says... I am confident in this very thing that he who begins a good work in you is going to bring it to completion at the coming of Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul knew that salvation, when real within a person's life, they will eventually make it to the end. But what was he facing? Well, when he wrote this letter, he is in prison. He's in probably Caesarea in the prison there. And while he's in prison, there's some people within the church setting that are trying to take advantage of him. They're trying to make him look bad. We told you he was not that good of a guy. Look, he is now in prison for what he was doing. Paul said their selfish ambitions are taking advantage of him. They're trying to gain a foot on him. Well, when you're in a bad situation and people are trying to take advantage of you, that's a tough thing to go through. None of us would do very well in trying to handle that one. And yet Paul was walking through that when he wrote this letter. Paul also was facing death, the possibility of dying. I don't know how times in your life you've ever been the point that you thought maybe this is the end. I had a, a bicycle accident with ambulance had to come and get me because of a body slam I took against the concrete. And while I was laying there, uh, I had a huge hematoma on my right hip. And I touched that. I didn't know it was there. And it was huge. And I thought, oh, I busted by femoral artery. I'm going to die. I really thought it was over with for a moment there until I heard an ambulance in the distance and knew maybe I'd had a chance. But that's one of the only times in my life I thought maybe I was at the end of my life. Paul knows he may be at the end of his life. And at the end of chapter 1, what does he say? I, I, I'm okay. I'm going to be all right. See, he, he had 40 men who had vowed to kill him. So not only faced the possibility of execution, he had 40 men who vowed never to eat or drink again until he died. 
And yet he says, you know, if I, if I live as Christ, to die is gain. He's not even shaken by that as he's going through it. He, had, he faced a shortage of people wanting to help in ministry. In fact, he tells the church at Philippi, I only have one man I can really count on. Most people get so flustered and frustrated. I'm the only one doing this. Nobody else is helping us. And we get very frustrated. He's not. He's, I'm just glad I got Timothy. I got a man who really cares about you. A friend of his has nearly died. Epaphroditus came very close to death, we're told in this chapter 2 of, of this letter. And as he's doing that, he says, my good friend's very ill and he's facing death. He's come very close for the work of Christ. And I know it's caused distress among y'all and it's distressed him because he can't be there for you. That's an added burden. Then when you add to the fact that he's in prison, people are trying to take advantage of him. He faces the possibility of death. There's not very many who can help. And the one guy who could be of help is facing death. And then he says, I have enemies everywhere. I have people who, who cannot stomach what I'm doing in the gospel, and he's facing that constant attack. He has two women, and you know that from chapter 4, who are battling with each other, causing strife. And he just also, when he writes, he said, I'd love to see you guys again, but I don't know if that'll ever happen. He's facing financial difficulties. But he says to the Philippian church, you're the poorest church, but yet you've been helping me. If ever there should be a negative letter, if ever there should be something that would state this life is tough and I don't know if we can get through it, it ought to be this letter. But Paul says, I can do this. I can do all things. He, he, so how does he get to the point? Because I know sometimes in my own life when the pressure becomes that difficult on me, it's hard to get up and go. It's hard to do that which is right. And yet Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In fact, he's going to tell Timothy in the second letter, teach men this. Teach faithful men how they can do all that I am giving you. And then he told the church at Corinth, I want you to run in such a way that you win. So my question then becomes this. How do you and I get to the point that we can make a statement like Paul does? I can do all things. So how does it happen? Is it a magical formula? No. It's a simple Reaction to what God's word has called us to do. So what's the first thing you got to have? What's the first ingredients to get to verse 13? Look at verse 4. Paul starts with joy. The first thing to leave when you're suffering is joy. But the one thing that should always be there is joy. James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance. This is Paul's command to rejoice. And it's such an important command. He repeats it again in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Notice the phrase always. There is never a point in time that you and I are not to have joy to fill our heart and our soul and all that we're doing. When he's writing this church and he's in prison and he's facing the pressures of prison, of death, and of people reacting in a negative way to him, he says this. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or whether in truth, because some were in pretense, some were speaking truth, he said, I don't care what it is, Christ is being proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. He had people who were doing things in such a way to make him look bad. He said, as long as they're uplifting Christ, I'm okay. He's rejoicing. It's real. He's going to say in Philippians 3, 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And then he makes a statement that I never had seen before until recently. He said this in 3.1. It is a safeguard. A safeguard. You know what that is? Safe place. You want a safe place in life? 
You know, our colleges over the last three or four years have gone wacko crazy in some areas, and they provide safe place so kids don't get too shook up by life. Well, there is a safe place for us. It's not in some room on a campus somewhere. It's not some hiding place. The safe place is in joy. When you have joy, when it is real, you're safe. You're in a good place. Joy is something we talk about all the time, but we don't always see it alive in people's lives. Nehemiah brings, I think, one of the greatest points when he said this. Do not be grieved. Don't be upset. Rejoice in the Lord. For the joy of the Lord is what? Your strength. Your strength. When you're sad, frustrated, mad, or angry, you have very little strength. But when you are filled with joy, you're stronger than you've ever imagined. And Nehemiah knew that. The people in Nehemiah's day were going through hardships that were so difficult, it was unbelievable the way they were living. And he's telling them, once the wall was up, let's have a party. Literally, let's have a party. And the joy that comes from that will give you the strength to be able to do that. I'm here to tell you this first statement he makes is probably the key statement always. Paul tells the church of Thessalonica this. This is the will of God. What is the will of God? Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. This joy is the most important thing. And when you don't have it, you're not going to get to 413. It will not happen. So... Paul then adds, if I've got joy and I've got strength, what do I then bring to the table? Look at the next verse there in verse 5. Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. Your gentle spirit. Joy adds strength. Then we have the ability to live life with no fear. Gentle means I'm gracious and kind to all people. We had a situation in the game Friday night in which one of our players got slammed to the ground. The kid jumped on top of him, began pounding him, and four of their players came full blast and dove right into him. Well, you know what that did to my bench? We're having, and if you come off the field, onto the field, you can be ejected from the game. We're trying to keep them back and everything. And afterwards, I'm sitting there talking to them, and I'm going, listen, guys, you, can't, you cannot react that way. There are a lot of reasons now in public school football and in private school football you cannot act that way. But sons, you can't. Well, their joy had disappeared. Their strength had gone. I said, get out there and play the game. That's the best thing you can do instead of getting out throwing fists at each other and stuff. Get out and play the game. Guys, do not underestimate how important gentleness is. It's power under control. I have the ability to live. I have the ability to think. I have the ability to keep control of all I go. Joy gives me that kind of strength, and it's a real thing in life. And then he says this, let your gentle spirit be made known to everybody. All of us should experience your gentleness from coming from your joy. It should be evident to everybody that we encounter in life. Some people, you see them walking up, and you look to see, is this a good day or a bad day? And if it's a good day, you know they're going to be joyful and they're easy to be around. If it's a bad day, they'll snap your head off. And so you're on eggshells when you're around them. Don't be the type of person that everybody has to walk on eggshells around. It's usually because you have no joy within life. Be the person so filled with the presence of God within your life that you're filled with this amazing joy and it gives you the strength to be able to treat everybody well. That's what we're called to do. 
The two commandments God gives us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, but to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. This gentleness needs to be seen. And if you need another motivation to do right towards others, what does he say in that verse? The Lord's near. The Lord is watching. You know, I've, I've said before, standing up here, I, I used to sit up there in the balcony at the First Baptist Church of Orange in high school. We had a huge choir at the church I went to. My mom and dad would be in the choir. Dad was no problem because he really didn't care what we were doing up there. But mom was. And there'd be times that high school kids would, we might be acting up a little bit up in the balcony as far away from the people as we could possibly get. And all of a sudden I'd feel a presence. You've been there. You know what I'm talking about. And my eyes would go from looking down at the choir and mom would be just staring at me. I was raised old school. I'm in trouble when I get home. It's amazing when mom's presence was around how much better her son would act. How much more should we act better knowing that God's present with us always? I told my football player the other day, I said, do you take serious your faith in Christ? We're a Christian group of people. We're a Christian, we're, we may not always look like a Christian team, but everyone in here proclaims faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You lose it on the field, and you throw a fit. Do you not realize God's standing right there? He's right there. In fact, he's not standing there. What does Scripture tell us about when we come to Christ? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the one who gave himself for me and who loves me. Christ in me. That very presence of God should help me at that moment, which means this. If he's with me, he's going to take care of me. As, honestly, guys, those of you who take serious your walk with Christ, has God ever let us down? We've been hit hard by life at times. It might seem like that, but in reality, you know that God is at work in your life and you can see it. Know that he's present with you. He's going to do what he needs to do within your life. And he's going to get you through that. And that will be seen by how you treat those around you. Now, add the third thing to this. Joy, gentleness, third thing. Prayer with thanksgiving. Notice what he says there in verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all your comprehension shall guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So as I face the difficult situation, what is my response? My response is, I should not be bothered by it. I should not worry about it. Now, you know what? I know something. Through my own experience in life, that is easy to preach and very difficult to do. I probably have told the story when Jonathan, my son, crushed his face at the age of five. When we got home that night from the emergency room, the doctor had not given us a lot of hope. I'm scared. This was our baby, five years of age. He obliterated his nose. He fell face first in the bathtub off the bathroom sink. Nobody was in the bathroom. He tried to jump a chair it with his feet, it flipped him, and he caught the outside of the bathtub like that with his face. And they told us he would be brain damaged, 
may go blind and might not live. Some of you have lost children. You know the suffering that might be in that. So I'm now the pastor experiencing that in my own family. We got home that night. We had to be at Lubbock to the emergency room with the next or the hospital next morning at Methodist Hospital to meet with the plastic surgeons and doctors and everything else. My wife goes to sleep out of just sheer exhaustion. It had been a long night. It was the middle of the night. We got to be up at five. I'm not. My wife can sleep at any moment. I, I, my mind gets going. I can't. I'm scared to death. I think it's about as scared as I've ever been in my life. And I cannot sleep. Clock's ticking. And I look in the sky. It's dark in my room. Lord, I got I to gotta learn something here. You tell me be anxious or nothing, but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let the peace, let your request be made known to God. The peace of God which passes a call, comprehension, shall guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Where's my peace? You promised me peace. Where's my peace? Guys, I did it, I think, eight or nine or ten times. I mean, I am scared and I am frustrated. And of course, I do this for a living, and I'm supposed to handle it. I'm not handling it. On about that tenth time, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. And I choked on those next words with thanksgiving. I was not thankful. I wasn't even thankful. Something I don't normally do. I don't get on my knees and pray. At my age, I can't get back up. So, but even then, younger, I don't get on my knees. But I did that night. I got on the side of the bed. Jan's out like a light on her side. I said, Father... Thank you. Thank you. He's still alive. We've got a chance. Thank you, Mom and Dad. Be on a plane in the morning. They're coming. Thank you, Jan's parents have already left and they're on their way. They'll be here sometime, middle of the day where we lived. Thank you. We gave us a good doctor tonight. I'd already found out, the church had already found out that I was getting hit by huge medical bills. The hospital, because I was poor, wanted 20% up front. And so I gave a credit card, got about $5,000 with the charges before it was over with. I had my 20% level, and they were already test beyond anything I was expecting. And I had been told when I got home at midnight, there was a message waiting for me. Mr. Ernest Green called me and said, Preacher, it's all paid for. Bank will take care of it, and I'll take care of it. So thank you for Ernest, Father. It took one load off my mind. And I just kept thanking him. Guys, there's nothing special about who I am or what I did. I just did it. Next thing I know, the alarm went off. I remember getting back in bed. I fell asleep. I was rested. I learned a major lesson early in my life. Prayer without thanksgiving doesn't work. Prayer with thanksgiving, God does something magical. And I don't really like the word magical, but he does something amazing. He brings peace. And my son's fine today. It was a tough hole. Cult. We had to walk through a lot of difficult days, major plastic surgery. I, I still accuse him sometimes of being a little brain damaged, but he thinks I am too. And so the Lord was gracious. We went through a little survivor. Why our child and others didn't that were in my ministry, but... The Lord was gracious through all of that. Now, I would stop there and go on to the next point, but 
Years later, I'm preaching this at Village Parkway. And sitting right there in the middle on Sunday evening, there were a couple hundred people there on Sunday evening. Sitting right there was my dad. My dad was not handling mom's sudden death very well at all. They were married for 53 years and they'd been in love. They always treated each other so amazing all my life. And she's gone and he's not doing well. And I knew it. And there was nothing as a son I could do to be of help. I'm not even thinking of him, though, when I'm preaching this. He later said, son, thank you for the sermon last Sunday. I went home, and I got on my knees, and I thank God for Wilma. I thank God for 53 years. I thank God that I would be able to see her one more time down the road. I thank God for you and Keith and Mike for how you've helped me through all of this. And he said, son, you know something? I slept. I slept better than I've ever slept before. I have seen it over and over among members of my church when I would encourage them to be able to do this. So what Paul's saying is, joy should fill your heart. You've been saved by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Christ is now with you. Let be seen in your dealings with people around you. And when the tough times come, pray with thanksgiving. Don't worry. You say, well, it's hard to stop worrying. Well, you know what we're supposed to do? The next point. Look what the next point is. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good repute, is there anything excellent, anything worthy of praise? Dwell on this. Think about this. I bet everyone in this room is great at worry. You ought to be just as good at biblical meditation. There's no difference between the two. Worry is I take my problems and dwell on them. God says dwell on my word. Dwell on that which is good, what is lovely, what is right. Dwell on that. See, I've, I've come to the opinion of this. This is I've thought through this over and over because I, I love this passage and it's been a huge help to me. If I am filled with joy and my conscience is I'm doing the best I can around people and I'm doing all right. I'm not perfect, but I'm doing all right. And I pray with thanksgiving and I get peace, then I can think clearly. You can't think clearly without the peace and the joy. And what he wants me to do is at critical moments in my life, what do I need to dwell on? God's promises, his provisions, his presence. Because nothing's changed. In the worst circumstance you could go through life, and I would say the people in, in Maui, I've been in Lahani once in my life. It's an amazing place, and now it's gone. Some of those families are hurting so horrifically, it's, it's, we can't even begin to imagine what they're going through. Even at that worst moment, if I'm a believer, I, I have a bunch of people from Pakistan on my Facebook page, probably several, several hundred. How that happened goes back to a Muslim ministry that I used to do. Their churches were all burned this week, 20 of them. Two pastors were burned. And they've been writing me for help, and I don't have any way to help anymore. And so they've been doing that. And I don't really know the people, but for some reason they've done that. But they've been writing later in the week, our God is real, our God is with us. Our God is good. God calls us all things to work together. I've been amazed as I watch this. I don't even know the people. I just know them through their presence on my Facebook page. They write me occasionally. A couple of them message me, and I see that. The joy is real in the midst of the worst suffering possible because what they're doing now is they're dwelling on that which is good. They're thinking it through in their life. True, honorable, right, pure, lovely, good, good repute. He says dwell on it. That word means logically think. It's a command to logically Think, to think through what God is doing with joy, gentleness, and thanksgiving under control, mind working, 
I can make great decisions in life. And now you know what you do with that? Verse 9. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, what do you do with this? Practice these things. Do this every day. You know, since I took up coaching last year, we have to drill the kids over and over and over to get it almost in their muscle memory, how to react and how to respond. Practicing football is no different than practicing Christianity, that we live this out every single day. We work through this every day. We work on the joy. We work on, on being thankful. We work on prayer. We work on those kind of things. So it becomes a part of who we are. And so he says, you've learned this. I've taught you this, but you've received it. My next-door neighbor, Byron Williams, played wide receiver for the New York Giants. He was a great receiver during his day. He was teaching me how to catch a football. Fingertips, preacher. Focus on the ball as it comes in, the point of the ball. Then once you've got it, tuck it and give the ball a name. He would always call his, I think it was, April was her name. It was his daughter. And he says, you don't drop daughter, your daughter on a football field, so i got to hold on to the football. But his whole point was, you got to get it. you got to hold on to it. When you and I great, receive these great truths, it means we take the truths that God has taught us and we make it a part of our life and we're not letting it go for, no, for nothing. It means we've heard. It means we really have heard what's going on and then we watch others around us and see it within them and it strengthens us in all that we do. That's the impact Paul had. So what he's learned is when you do that, he's come to a very amazing place in life. You know what that is? Look at verse 11. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I'm in. Are you there? Content? Totally content where God's got you right now? Paul says, I'm content. I am of the opinion that's the one place that God really wants us more than anywhere else. Psalms 23.1 The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You don't have to read the rest of Psalms 23. It's all right there in the first verse. He then begins to unfold the rest of 23, what it is to have no wants. If our God is provident in all that he does, if he's ordained your days, even before there was one, if his presence is with you, then wherever you're at, you're right where he wants. My mom used to get on my case all the time because when I am... 13, I want to be 14. Because at 14, you got your driver's license. And then they changed the law just before I was 14. September 1st, my birthday September 15th to 16. All my friends, because I was the youngest in my grade, my mom made me skip first grade. Worst thing she ever did to me was make me skip first grade because she was going to raise this genius of a kid. Boy, did she mess up on that one and stuff. But, but I had, everybody had cars and driver's license, and I didn't. Probably the greatest thing ever was the state not letting me have my license at 14. So I want to be 16. I got 16. Then I want to be 18 because you're a man at 18. Except you have to sign up for the draft, which I didn't really like during the Vietnam War. And then at 18, I want to be 21 because 21 is really when you became a man. 
And then at 21, I want to be 25 because my insurance would go down. And at 25, I wanted to be 30 because nobody would hire a young guy to be pastor who's in his 20s. And my mom kept saying, son, quit wishing your life away. God knows what he's doing. Enjoy the moment. And I was, and I kept waiting for the next step in life. Well, I'm at the age now, I don't want to, the steps to come too fast anymore. You know what I'm talking about. But we do. We worry about so much. We get, we're so discontent half the time. We don't, you know, I'm retired. I want more income. I'm not going to get any more income. Or I want this. I want that. You know all those things. Paul says, I've just learned to be content. I'm right where he has me. Good or bad, I'm right where I need to be. And he says in verse 12, I know how to get along with humble means. When I don't have much, I know how to live in prosperity. And most people don't know how to live either place. But Paul did. And he said, I've learned in every circumstance in life the secret of being filled and going hungry, of having abundance and suffering needs. What a place to live. Guys, that's what, when we come on Sunday mornings and you gather with your family and your friends and everybody to worship and to do all this stuff as a church, we're just trying to get everybody to that point in our lives where our faith in Christ has such impact that there's just a contentment among all of us. It's a tough battle to get to. We all struggle to get there, but that's where he wants it. So how did it impact Paul? Well, it doesn't upset me that some people are trying to make me look bad in ministry. That's okay. They're preaching Christ and teaching. I don't care what their motives are. I'm all right. And if I die, if the 40 men who've made a a vow to kill me, it's okay. If they execute me, if Herod executes me in prison... It's okay. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. Guys, Paul said this. You know what I want in life? I don't need anything. 310, he says what? What does he want? I want to know him. I want to know Christ. When he wrote that, he's my age, and he's still wanting to fully grasp and understand who Jesus is. I just want to know him. Do you know what eternal life is? Eternal life is not living forever. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, you are going to live forever because of the resurrection. But eternal life, John 17, 3, is what? To know the God and to know Christ. And Paul, in experiencing eternal life, wanted to know even more of who his Savior was. And it put him in such a place that what could he say? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In prison, he rejoiced. He's not alarmed, and he's not frustrated, and he knew that God would take care of him. So the question becomes, as we wrap down, because if I've given you the sermon title, my sermon title is, Can I? Yes, you can. You can join with him. You could and can say, I can do all things. But you know what the real question is this morning? Will I? Will I rejoice? Will I let my gentle spirit be made known to all men? Will I pray with thanksgiving? Will I dwell on that which is good and right? Will I practice this so that one day I wake up and it is good? I think I said it last week, but 
at a scrimmage last week. I went over to Coach Bright, my head coach. I said, Coach, thank you. What are you thanking me for? I said, thank you for asking the old preacher to come coach. This has been fun. I had no right to be out here. I have no background in this, but thank you. I've had more fun doing this. In fact, I would have retired earlier if I had known I was going to do something like this, because this is good. I can do stuff on the football field I could never do as pastor. You get a troublemaker in the church, I can't go to the deacon and say, you know, such and such is causing havoc. One of you go take him out right now. <laughs> I can do that on the football field. Number 25, he's eating our lunch. Somebody stop him. One of the kids said, I'll do it, coach. Go get him. Yes. But it's just fun being out there. Fun teaching boys about Christ. It's fun teaching them how to play a game. It's fun watching them come off the field. And it, it provides a contentment. So I come home late at night at 10, 1030 every night. And I am so tired at 70. It's unbelievable. But I can lay my head down and go, this is fun. This is good. I think that's what God wants in your life and my life. No matter through the difficulties or hardships, you know, at 70, my knees hurt so bad I can hardly get off the field. My foot from being broke is aching so bad by the end of practice. And the boys are coming up, Coach, my knee hurts. I said, join the club. <laughs> but it's just fun living life. And I've been through as many hardships as you guys have. I've had tragedies within my life just like you have. But our God is good. Our God is good all the time. And all the time, our God is good. Let's live with his presence every day and let's exhibit to the world a contentment. Maybe that would help our country these days because there's so lack of contentment everywhere. May it be seen in you this day. Father, thank you for the day and for the privilege and honor you give us to be able to gather and study your word. We thank you for Paul's words and insights. They're amazing. Too often we just read them. We quote them at moments we think would be appropriate Sometimes we don't internalize them the way we should. We've thought through them carefully, meditated upon them, made them a part of who we are, practiced that in all of our lives. But Father, do that. Help us to all be able to get to the point that we can say with Paul, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.